is officially episode three of the wind up podcast uh the weeks are already flying by let me tell you um before we dive into this week's topic i have just a quick i quick like announcement update and uh just some stuff about kind of where the direction of this is going in the coming weeks and months uh, for this year so as i was driving home literally i was in the truck coming home i had to go pick up a new barrel and then drop it off the winery and came here and i figured out exactly kind of how we're going to organize this and how these shows are kind of you know kind of evolve as the year goes on and i figured out you know basically every month we're going to have kind of four separate themes that make up a month uh, the first week of every month is going to be more wine education kind of production uh, you know talk you know whether it's vineyard management in the cellar uh, a little bit more kind of geeky technical stuff and we'll dive into specific you know details or similar to like episode one uh, it'll be more of like a top level explanation of winemaking like in general uh, week number two which will be this episode uh, this is going to be more opinion uh, this is going to these are going to be kind of questions that have popped up over the course of my career in the wine industry i'm going to dive kind of deep down into them and provide some insight and probably talk a little bit of shit and just see where the conversation goes as we kind of go through the half hour or 45 minutes that we're chatting uh, Week number three is going to be a tasting. Uh, I'm going to pick a region, a variety, and we're going to just sit there and kind of geek out and talk about them. I'll have some kind of materials that I'll bring up on the screen uh, that I'll reference in the uh, episode description as well. I am going to try and strong arm Brittany into doing a blind tasting on a third wine for me uh, for the third week. Uh, that way you can see how much of a fool us winemakers really are. Uh, there's probably been like three or four times in my life life i've like nailed a blind tasting uh so that's gonna be interesting to say the least week number four uh we are going to do more of a q a oh i should mention uh on week three we're gonna do that live uh, i'm gonna be streaming that live on twitch.tv i'll make sure that uh, we have all the information i already have a channel all kind of set up and ready to go so we're just going to use that one um, and I'll make sure that we announce that uh, in the weeks leading up to it. Um, it's likely going to be a combination of some of my internet and gaming friends and also some uh, friends and clients and club members, hopefully, as well as we dive into those tastings. So that should be a lot of fun. It's going to be a very eclectic group of people that show up to those. Um, it might get a little rowdy in the chat, so we'll see what happens. Uh, anyway, so week number four is going to be more of a Q&A, you know, questions that come up over the course of this podcast, whether it's in the comments section, uh, whether it's in tastings that I'm hosting out at the winery, um, it's going to be more of kind of a boom, 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 like three to five topics that we're going to cover in basically like 10 minute or so spurts. That way we can cover like a few things, just kind of rapid fire. It's kind of like the, I guess, the lightning round. Um, at that time, I'm also going to try and address anything that I might have gotten wrong. Uh, this was something that happened in episode one as I was editing it, editing it and then getting it all posted up. Uh, some because I do all of that as I rewatch the episode and kind of make notes as I go. And I have a few like markers and timestamps of things I need to double check. Um, and you'll see, you know, throughout this show is that I'll probably have like text pop up randomly throughout some of the videos that way i can kind of self-correct as i go because i'm sure there are going to be things that i'm going to say that are especially if i'm going off the top of my head things that are going to be inaccurate 
and or just flat wrong. And I want to make sure that I have the opportunity to write those wrongs and make sure that I'm giving you accurate information. So uh, there will be room for critique as always. Uh, and I'll try and do that to myself as much as possible. That way I'm not providing any uh, inaccurate information over the course of these episodes. So um, as a reminder, episodes are going to be released every Wednesday, typically Wednesday mornings is when we'll premiere them on YouTube. Uh, we are going to start, I'm, I'm looking into how we're going to upload them to a typical, um, you know, kind of podcast, whether it's, you know, the uh, Apple podcasts or Spotify or whatever the case may be. I'm going to kind of figure out uh, what all that entails, hopefully by the end of February. Uh, that way we can have this available just in audio format as well, not just the video format uh, that we're currently doing through YouTube. So those are the updates. I uh, can't wait to share more stuff with you. And we are going to start this week, week two, uh, the second week in February with an opinion piece. And this is going to be one that comes up. Actually, this topic comes up a lot less than it used to. And that's kind of been the trend over the last probably 15 years or so. But it's something that we still bring up. And it's something that we talk about on a fairly regular basis. And it gets brought up. Uh, between wine consumers and winemakers and industry people all the time, and that is wine ratings. What do they mean? Are they useful? Aren't they? What should I look for? What should I be cautious of? And I'll, I'm going to preface this with the I, with my own just stark opinion that I don't think they're very useful anymore. The anymore is important. But... For those of you that know me pretty well, for all my good friends and colleagues, uh, for even some of our uh, clients and club members, you know I tend to have a pretty dry sense of humor. You know I can be sarcastic. I tend to be a bit of a contrarian just for the sake of doing so. I also love to play devil's advocate. It's one of my ultimate favorite pastimes because anytime someone has a staunch belief in something, I feel like it needs to be challenged. I do this with myself because I believe that it's the only way we grow as human beings is to challenge your beliefs and try and understand things from the other side of the aisle. And it's okay if you still don't. It's okay if you still disagree. That's all good. The important thing is that you're open to having a rational discourse and conversation about it. So with that in mind, I'm going to tell you why wine ratings are great first, and then I'm going to get into the stuff I don't like. And actually, to be fair, I'm going to start with stuff that I like about ratings and end with stuff that I like about ratings. And the middle is going to make up the stuff that I think is insane and why I think they're silly. So let's got, let's get it. So the reason why wine ratings are great, and I can't even say that with a straight face, is it can be a good roadmap. They can be a great guidebook. This is something that I think, this is really, I think, why they were created, although I've never been able to sit down and talk to Robert Parker about why he created the 100-point scale and started The Wine Advocate and doing all this stuff. I've never had that conversation with him, but as as an industry professional and someone who's who grew up in and around it, I think that's why he created it, was to give people a guide. You know, wine in the United States, when people were just starting to get into it, was relatively new. I mean, wine was being made here, but wine wasn't really being marketed as a beverage in the U.S. for a long time. I mean, prohibition, in essence, wiped out the entire wine industry outside of a handful of wineries and people that were bootlegging. But bootlegging really was beer and mostly whiskey, right? Like, that's what you always think of. You always think of whiskey. 
So, you know, pretty much overnight, once prohibition was repealed, the United States became a beer and cocktail culture. And with that, you know, wine was tertiary at best, right? It still is. I mean, we, we drink more wine, I believe, now as a nation than any other nation, but our per capita consumption is still relatively low. I haven't looked at those exact stats. I'll try and find a link to that because it's actually kind of fascinating data. If I can find it, it's in the description. If there's no link there, then sorry, I couldn't find it. Uh, but typically that stuff's out there and it's, it's worth looking up if you're just interested in how alcohol is consumed in this country. Uh, anyway, you know, wine was very much tertiary, tertiary. And when wine started getting into kind of mainstream, it was hard to decipher. You had all these French, German, Italian, Spanish wines. You had some stuff coming from California, some stuff, uh, you know, from other places within the U.S. And, and it was hard to decipher. It was stuff that it was something that was just it, it was hard to read labels, understand what was happening. What is Cabernet Sauvignon? What does this pH number mean? Why did this? Why does this wine have flavors and hints of cherries and vanilla and, and spice? Uh, but it's just grape juice. Like, what are we talking about? So, you know, these rating systems and these reviews really, I think, were created to give people that reference point of like, hey, here's a personal recommendation. Here's what you can expect flavor-wise, structure-wise. If you're into aging wine, here's what that means and what it looks like for this particular wine, right? And it, it kind of, and it took off, you know? And there's a reason why everyone has kind of created their own scale of ratings. I mean, there's so many people and publications you can send your wine into you know, over the course of the years to get your wine to review. There's so many competitions. There's so much, so many ways to go about it now. But the most important thing is that you use it as a guidebook. And I'd almost say like, ignore the number. Don't like, don't worry if it's in the eighties or the nineties or the seventies even, because let's say you're reading the wine spectator. Actually, this is kind of cool. I got to show you this intermission. This is why this was important and why I wanted to talk about this. And this is why I keep props all over this place. Check that out. Look at that bottle that's on the bottom there. This is the annual Cabernet report from the Wine Spectator in 1991, November 15th. Uh, and this is when the 1998 uh, Con Valley Cabernet ended up on the cover of this bad boy. Wild, just wild stuff. So this is gonna come into perspective here shortly. It's super, I think, improper to like stand up and do stuff during a podcast, but I'm doing it anyway because this is this is going to fit in very well into what I'm talking about. So things like that old wine spectator and some of the articles in that are fabulous, by the way, from the early all oh, they're great. But no matter kind of what that number is, if you're reading the wine spectator and let's say you're looking for white wines and you know that if the wine spectator puts white wines in like the high 80s, and for whatever reason, whenever they're in the high 80s, you just seem to like those wines, you have your recommendation, you have your buying guide, right? That doesn't mean you have to get the perfect rating or the, you know, 100 point rating necessarily. It just means you have a guidebook. And if you know that that high 80s for white wine from spectator, those you tend to like those, boom, you've got your, you've got your source and you can run with it. If you're, you know, if you're reading, you know, what Antonio Galoni does 
uh, or Lisa Peretti Brown, what she was doing at the Wine Advocate. I think she she's left and doing her own thing now. I believe. I mean, there Jeb Dunnick, you know, just James Suckling, whoever, uh, Jim Lobby, you know, whoever you're paying attention to, uh, the wine enthusiast and spectator, and you know, whoever else. Um, if you know that within like a certain range that you typically like those wines, there's your guidebook. Those ratings could be considered low. They could be considered high. Doesn't matter. The number really doesn't matter as, as long as you know kind of where that range is and that there's a good chance you're gonna enjoy that wine. And that's where kind of the personal recommendation of wine ratings comes in. And that's where I think wine ratings can be valuable in today's world. Now, I'm going to segue to why I don't like them. <laughs> because I think that I think that's kind of the it's very finite in my opinion. It, it's 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 very very finite. And sometimes they're interesting to read, but other than that, I mean, here's the deal. This is probably my A number 1 thing about why I don't like wine ratings. is because they're not objective. If the 100-point scale was truly objective and everyone was doing deductive wine tasting the same way, all wines would be rated the same from every publication, right? I would be able to submit my Merlot, which I never have, by the way. None of my wines have ever been rated or reviewed. But if I were to, I could submit it to six of them, and they would all come back either the same or within like a, a small range. I give it a little variation, of course. Yeah, I go like margin for error, right? And that's not the case. And this is something that happens regularly. And this has been my experience working for larger wineries. And the number one thing is that you're not just submitting your wines to one reviewer. Very typically, you're submitting to a handful of them. The reason you do that is there's there's probably a reviewer that you know that is going to rate your wines or kind of favor your wines and your style and what you're doing. There There is some bias there. A hundred percent there is. Uh, there's a reason why my family typically leaned on the opinion of Robert Parker for a long, long time. One was because the wine advocate didn't allow any advertising. So there was no bias in that sense, which is a big thing, whether you like to believe it or not. You're not going to bite the hand that feeds you when they submit a wine for review and they're paying you advertising dollars. Just saying. And he didn't do that. Not until the wine advocate was sold, anyway. Number two, he tended to really enjoy Con Valley wines. He also had coined a phrase, unfined and unfiltered, which is something that they did. Uh, my grandparents, uh, my grandfather and my father, that's something they do. Uh, so it fit into kind of like his style and kind of what his bias of wine was. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just that was the case. Like it, it's it's the reason why these aren't objective is because you have people that just have their own expectations of what wine should be or what they think is important. And that differs from person to person. It's not a it's it's not an objective process. It's a subjective process as it should be because wine is very subjective. It depends on what mood you're in, what food you're eating, uh, just, you know, any number of things. There's so many variables when it comes to drinking and enjoying wine. So it shouldn't be 
objective in my opinion. So that's kind of my big pet peeve is that there's kind of this idea that's like, oh, if it got a 98, it's obviously an A plus wine. No, it's not. It's not. It's probably very good. I mean, these people have probably tasted plenty of wines. They know what good wine is versus bad wine. They can pick out flaws. They can pick out stuff that doesn't work necessarily. But that doesn't mean that you, the consumer, or me, a winemaker, will like that wine. I mean, all of us have gotten a personal recommendation of a product that didn't work for us or that we didn't like, right? We all have. That's happened. And that's where that subjectivity comes in. And it's something that I, I have a, an immensely hard time getting past that because the, it, the folks that put a lot of weight in ratings, I'm like, that's one person's opinion. I want to know what you think. Like, I, I don't care if this wine got 100 points. That means nothing to me, especially if I don't like it. I've had 100-point wines that I do not like. It happens. I've had wines that are rated in the low 80s that I've adored. So, you know, it's not it's not a surefire thing. And that's probably my biggest pet peeve with wine ratings is that they kind of put you in this box. And I think it, it's it's tough to escape that box when you're kind of in that train of thought. And I have very, very talented friends in the industry as well as, you know, friends outside of wine. And they still will, they'll still like, oh, they'll open up a bottle of wine because we're over for dinner. Like, oh, and this got such and such points. And I'm like, I look at them like, what? You know, I don't care. This means like, I love, like the wine's good. I like it. You don't need to rationalize your purchase because it got a high score. Like it's a good wine. You opened it. I'm assuming it's good. You have good taste. I like the wine you drink. That's why I come over to your house. That's why you come over to my house so we can drink each other's wine. (laughs) <laughs> so again, it goes back to kind of that personal recommendation kind of vibe that I started with uh, because it's not a subjective process. It's just not. It, it, sorry, it's not an objective process. It's just not. It is a subjective process. So I got excited. I started talking fast and I f- forgot what I was saying. The second reason, well, kind of piggybacking on that and, you know, piggybacking on that and the second reason that I'm not a huge fan of them is that when you're submitting a wine and you're submitting it to multiple reviewers, there is going to be, there are going to be those differences. And I've seen wines for companies that I've worked for who will remain nameless that rated in the, you know, mid nineties, maybe even high nineties in one publication and were in the high eighties in another publication. There's a big difference between a B plus and an A plus, in my opinion. And again, going back to the objectivity of these, that doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, give it a couple of points, wiggle room, sure. But you know what the winery will do, and this is exactly what we did. I've worked in marketing. I know how this works, is that they sweep that high 80s under the rug and they publicize the high 90s. Because, I mean, that's that would be stupid. Why would you publicize the B plus? Like, you got the A plus. Like, don't, don't muddy the waters. Just ignore that one. That little guy, don't worry about that little guy. You know? That happens. And 
that's, I guess, maybe a second benefit. You know, I said I was going to start with one benefit and then kind of get in the heavy stuff, but there's a second benefit now that I'm kind of getting into this. And that is that it is a marketing tool for wineries. It's, this is not so much, it doesn't involve you, the consumer, but it's for wineries. It is something that is like, hey, if we get a high rating, that means we're getting a personal recommendation. That means we're getting in front of the clientele of this publication, this website, this blog, whatever, and we can expand our reach and market our wine to the people that pay attention to ratings, which are theoretically wine geeks and collectors and people that are willing to buy more wine. So it's a great marketing tool for wineries. But I think there's a big caveat to that. And this is something I encountered more so maybe seven or eight, maybe a little longer ago, seven or eight years ago, maybe a little longer. And this was kind of problem number two that I had with rating is that once you start playing the ratings game you don't have to keep playing it but it does become something that people expect i've seen it happen and more specifically when you get that high rating and then a year or two later you get a low rating on the same wine and people say oh you know what i guess it's not as good as it used to be, so I'm gonna skip this vintage. And it gives your clients an excuse not to buy your wine. I've seen it happen. This might be a point of contention for some people, but I've seen this happen uh, with brands that I've worked for. And, and like I said, this is something that happened much more frequently years ago. It's less frequent now because I do believe truly that the importance of ratings has diminished over time because more and more people are willing to trust their taste buds. But this is the main sticking point as to why I don't get any of MTGA reviewed or rated in any way, shape, or form. I don't enter my wines into competitions. I don't do any of that. I've sat down with one reviewer in particular at the... Shop. He asked if I could, if he, if I'd pour some wine for him. I said, you know, I'd love to, but I just want your honest opinion. I prefer that you don't publish any, you know, ratings or reviews. And he was very nice about it. it. Was very simply like, you know, it's it's all good. We don't have to try them then. I was like, all right, cool, no harm, no foul. Um, because I didn't want to let go of control of the marketing of my own brand. Gr granted, my marketing is rocky, right? We got the website, the social media, we got this, you know, as, as an avenue now. I, I'm doing, you know, some oddball stuff for sure. Uh, but once you lose that grip on your brand identity and you give it to somebody else and you get that low rating one year instead of the high ones you've been getting, it's like, that's, that's a tough pill to swallow. It's a tough pill to swallow. And that that's a big reason why I don't want to take that risk. I, I don't want to submit my wines to something that they could perform really, really well in. And then for whatever reason, the next year they perform really, really poorly. I've seen it happen and it sucks. And, and it's like, you, and it's, it's kind of, it's not like it's a super tough hill to climb out of, but because as a winery, you just don't publish any of that in your collateral. You don't put it on your website. You don't put it you know in your tasting notes you just kind of brush it under the rug but when you get the high rating you publicize it because it's exciting and you got the big number 
Um, there are some people that publish everything, and I think they're crazy for doing so. Uh, but you know, more that's their decision with their brand and how they want to market it. I get that. Um, but I think it's it's a it's much more beneficial to tell your story the way you want to tell it rather than rely on an independent source who may or may not give you good feedback. I mean, granted, I think there's one wine in like recent history that was rated like really low, like in the 50s or the 60s. It was a total anomaly. And I think they did it kind of more just for fun than anything else. I can't remember what it was. But typically, you don't see anything below like the low 80s, right? Like every every once in a while, you see something in the 70s. You're like, whew, that was rough. Um, but you don't go below that, typically. It's more or less a 30-point scale at best, if not a 15-point scale, more often than not. Um, but yeah, so I, the, the lack of control of marketing is, is a big point of contention for me. And I've yet to talk to somebody. I'm sure there's someone, if you get the 100-point rating, I mean, you're made in the shade, you know, I, that's the thing. And even though those are more common now, uh, they're still very tough to achieve. And there's no guarantee of it. I, I've, I've worked with people that are like, we're trying to get a hundred point wine. We're hiring this consultant. We're bringing on this people. We're using these barrels. We are trying to make a hundred point wine, which brings me to my next point and kind of going back towards kind of the, the bias side of things. And that it goes back to kind of that unfined, unfiltered comment of Robert Parker. All of a sudden, that became a thing. That became a trend. And now you had wineries catering to Parker to make a wine that would rate well. It's a thing. And why wouldn't it be? If there's a major marketing trend, look at Rosé over the last 10 years. How popular has Rosé gotten in the last 10 years? You're telling me you're not going to, as a, as a as an established winery and a brand, you're not going to make a little bit of Rosé and try and jump on the bandwagon? Of course you are. There are almost entire aisles in the grocery store dedicated to Rosé right now. Why wouldn't you jump on that trend? It's an easy buck. But it creates and leans into that bias of that reviewer because now if you're if you change your wine style and your order of operations to make sure that you can do things unfined and unfiltered it's different than what it was before because you're catering to a certain person's palate again their preferences again i've never talked to mr parker about any of this i'm kind of talking shit but he's kind of the og when it comes to this 100 point scale thing so he's who i'm probably going to mention the most I mean him no ill will, but it's a good example, in my opinion. Again, these can always be great guidebooks and great resources. Don't forget that. <laughs> so I think the, the other like winery side of things, and I've had a couple of winemakers tell me this, is that it's a good measuring stick. Ratings are a good measuring stick against your competitive set. If, you, if you're a decent business, you know who, who your competitors are, competitors are, and you know kind of where you're wanting to measure up and stylistically or size or whatever, where you want to be, what realm you want to be playing in. And if your other you know, competitors are being rated in X publication, you know, if you get rated in that publication as well, you're going to have a measuring stick as to where you compare. Are you below the field? Are you above the field? Or are you in the middle of the pack? Okay, fair enough. I buy that. One did tell me that it was more of a measuring stick for themselves, that they were making their wines consistently year in and year out, and that you know because this person is unbiased, uh, 
that it was a great reference point, which I call bullshit on 100%. Because if you're a winemaker worth their salt, you know your wine's consistent. The reason you know it's consistent is because you're the one who blended it. You're the one who made it. And typically, I mean, this is how I do blending sessions. It's how I've done blending sessions with other people and talked about it with other winemakers is that you have your new wine that you're putting together that you're getting ready for bottling. And then you have your control of the prior vintage right next to it. And then maybe you have a couple more vintages behind that. You do kind of a vertical tasting everything through the stuff that you're about to bottle. And the reason you do that is you want to make sure that that story is complete, that it's consistent, that it's coherent. If you're relying on ratings to tell you that your wines are consistent, I, I, I don't know what to tell you. I've, I've only had one person tell that to me. Um, so that's very much an anecdote. Um, so I can't say that there are a lot of people that use that uh, as a tool for that. But I, that blew my mind that that was their opinion of why ratings are good. And I was like, oh, that's... Mm. No, absolutely not. That makes no sense. No sense whatsoever. Yeah, that, that one that one blew my mind. So I think the... I'm trying to think of like the next like thing. I completely just had a brain fart. I lost my train of thought. What were we talking about? So we were talking about why they're good. They're a great reference point. Why they're bad. They're not objective in any way, shape, or form. Uh, wineries use them for marketing. Uh, the variability in ratings and how that affects your sales. We talked about that. Uh, we talked about the bias and, con- and changing wine style and why that is good or bad for the industry kind of as a whole. There was one other big thing that I wanted to talk about. Oh, this was it. I remember. I'm sorry. I completely had a brain fart right there. Um, This is something that is another anecdote, but it really pissed me off. And I've had multiple people corroborate this story. This sounds like I'm hunting for UFOs a little bit because I'm like, I'm not going to say who said it, but I'm not going to be that guy that throws people. I've already, I'm already talking enough shit during this podcast. I'm not going to start throwing, you know, friends of mine and brands and people under the bus. All right. We're not doing that. I'm happy to talk shit, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to start, you know, totally alienating the people that I love. So this happened after 2017. And there was a certain wine reviewer that had an opinion about Napa in 2017. And many of you know, if you've been, you know, learning about wine in in recent years, or you've been, you know, in and around Napa for a long time, that late into the harvest in 2019, we had some fires roll through the area. And there is a chance that some of the Cabernet and other big reds that were still hanging out there could have been affected by it, could have had smoke taint, which literally makes your wine taste like an ashtray when it's really bad. It can be a problem. Uh, something that many wineries are reeling from, from the 2020 vintage. And one of the r- bigger names in reviews and ratings at the time, basically in, in the coming year into 2018, was of the opinion that it was like, oh, it's about time Napa had a bad vintage. And thinking about that statement over the years 
And number one, that I've had other people like bring this up of like, oh yeah, like this is on record. Like people know this is what this person said. Um, it, it boggles my mind. And it, it also goes kind of back to, it's like, oh, what if you get that bad rating? Now now you're you're working with people who are actively willing to talk trash about what you do and the wine you're trying to sell. Again, the control of your marketing. And it just, it boggled my mind. And I have no idea how those comments worked out for that person. Um, I don't know if they had any effect on them whatsoever. But if I, I, cause over the years I have considered starting to submit my wines for ratings. I really truly have. I've thought about it on multiple occasions. In fact, probably every year I consider it. And as soon as that happened in 2017, I was like, there's no chance. If I'm consulting for somebody and they want to get their wines rated or reviewed, more power to you. It's your label. Go do what you want. MTGA will never be rated or reviewed. And it's not because I don't respect them or their opinions. I think many of them are very talented, very interesting people to listen to, and they have great knowledge when it comes to the wine industry. But some of them are snakes in the grass, and it's really tough to know who's who unless you've really gotten to know them personally. Uh, which brings me to my last point of why I think wine ratings can be useful. And I said I was gonna bookend it with the good stuff. I'm gonna play devil's advocate with myself and actually this one is far more honest and genuine than the first one, <laughs> to, to be completely honest. The first one you can do without, just go buy wine and see if you like it or not and just make mental notes or start a notebook or a journal of drinking wine, you'll figure it out, I promise but they can be a good guidebook too. But this is more important. And this this came from uh, actually sitting down um, with Antonio Galoni, and he might not remember this. This was quite a few years ago. And this is when, he, when we were talking about uh, the 2017 vintage. In particular, actually, the 17's come up a lot because that was the first kind of like fire year. And it was interesting because we were talking and we were with a, a couple other people uh, he was actually tasting Con Valley wines that I, I happened to be around. I just happened to be able to sit down at the table. It was very impromptu. But I'm going to paraphrase because I know he asked this question and made this statement, but it, this is not going to be verbatim. I, I didn't write it down, but I thought it was very genuine, very honest, and very important for how some of these folks operate. It's why I, you know, I, I don't read a lot of his stuff. I don't pay a lot of attention to it. But if there's a guy that, based on this interaction, I'm like, okay, I'd trust him. You know, I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know him in any way, shape, or form outside of this. I, I've never talked to him since or before. It was just this little interaction was, as a winemaker, was like, all right, he gets it. You know what I mean? Like, it was just like, he gets it. We're talking about 2017. And he had been tasting in Napa for the last like week or two or three or something insane, you know, hitting up as many wineries as he could, tasting through everything, making notes that he can, you know, give kind of his stamp of approval on the wines and do the rating and review thing. And he said something to the effect of, you know, I knew that there were the fires in 2017. And it's been surprising because out of all the wines I've tasted, there has not been one that was spoiled due to smoke tank. And I expected there to be more, but 
I'm not on the ground. I'm not working harvest. I know this thing happened, but I'm very pleasantly surprised. And I don't know why this isn't more of an issue. And it was a beautiful moment of someone just being humble and willing to admit they didn't know something. And I think, you know, as much as I like to talk shit about these publications and the rating system in general, I do believe there's a lot of very genuine, honest people that are just they're making a living. They found a cool niche. They're wine geeks. They love it. And this is what they do. And they want to, they're constantly on the quest to learn more. Like many of us. You know, that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast was to talk about some of these things, do some of my own research and bring that information forward, challenge some of my own beliefs, and hopefully learn something. Or even if I disagree with it, just agree to disagree and move on to the next thing, you know? Um, so I want to end with that, is that there's, there is a very positive, or there can be a very positive thing that you garner from some of these folks, and that is the knowledge that they have, right? Like, like that's an old business adage, right? You always surround yourself with people that are smarter than you, right? You can't be an expert at everything. Very few people can do that. It's important that you have people around you that are more successful and more talented, whatever that may mean to you, than you. Uh, whether it's your friends, your coworkers, whatever, your employees, um, surround yourself with people that know more than you do because you're going to learn something and you're going to get better at what you do. And that's how you get better is you work with people that are better, smarter, stronger, faster, you know, whatever. So I hope that this, that didn't come off too harsh. <laughs> I don't know if all these like opinion pieces are going to be quite this feisty. Um, Maybe this, I don't know, it seems feisty. I don't really think there's, I've, I've seen a lot of, you know, podcasts and wine and some of them are kind of more technical and like home brewing or it's like strict wine making manufacturing. Others are a little bit more salesy, like we work for this company and um, I'm going to talk about these wines. And by the way, here's the six pack you can buy or whatever. Um, and I really want this to be kind of an, uh, an open and honest forum. And I hope that this first kind of opinion episode of wine ratings, why I think they are silly and why I don't use them and why I don't think people should to the extent that they do. But that being said, there are still some shining stars out there that are worth looking at. And there are some good things that you can, like uh, like all most things, you can garner some good from it. Um, so even if I don't agree with it, even if I think wine ratings are silly, I know they're important to some people. And if they're important to you, more power to you. We will agree to disagree. That's been episode three. I hope you enjoy it. We will be back next week with a tasting. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to do yet. I have a couple of options in terms of the wines that I want to kind of present for this first tasting. And it's going to be live on Twitch. The link to that Twitch channel is going to be down below. We're going to be doing it live in the evening. It's likely going to be around uh, 5 or 6 o'clock Pacific time. I'm going to announce all of this stuff on Twitter um, as well as on our social media channels. Uh, this will also be in the newsletter that we're sending out for our winter wine releases in February. So we're, there's going to be a lot more information kind of coming your way on, on the structure and how we're doing things and what we're doing. Uh, of course, any questions that you have, leave 
them down in the comments below. I'm gonna be answering those during the Q and A's during the last week of every month. Uh, if there are any other topics that you would su suggest, things that you want to know more about in the world of wine, whether it's specific kind of technical stuff or just my opinion on things, I'm, as you hopefully can tell now, I'm happy to give it. So thank you so much for tuning in to episode three. We will catch you next time.